Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast that offers a fresh take on the controversies thrown up by some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers, a historian of France and a general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, um, which is now so long ago that it feels like in those days, Robert Maxwell was still a good thing. He was the savior of the Daily Mirror. Yeah, I think it was so long ago, I was actually begging him for a job. <laughs> I mean, I guess I was, I was a precocious eight-year-old in that case. Um, so today we are, we're using the recent BBC documentary about the Maxwell family, and then Ghislaine and her fall from grace into um, being behind bars, potentially for life. <laughs> That's quite a fall. Yeah, it's, a, it's quite a fall. So Tom, I mean, why don't you give me your, give us, I should say, your, your overview of your vibe of how this story fits within the broader cultural picture. So this story, this particular documentary we're reviewing is by Colin Bain and is called The House of Maxwell and is a kind of three part series that's currently uh, airing through the BBC. Um, House of Maxwell as a title, you know, can't help but make me think of something like like the House of Atreus. Like you do get a sense that the Maxwell's as cursed dynasty um, is the is the take of the show. And it is all about the kind of father daughter relationship. Um, Robert Maxwell, the notorious uh, businessman and fraudster and crook um, and the seemingly fatal inheritance that passes from him uh, through to his daughter, Ghislaine. One thing that I did not like about this programme is that morally it's already made its mind up about both Robert Maxwell and Ghislaine Maxwell. Um, and I think that that's part of a bigger problem in the culture is that these names now have become so polluted and maybe justifiably, which we can talk about. Um, but it's quite hard to watch a documentary, which is also a kind of morality tale where the morality has already been sort of predecided from the first frame. Um, I thought it was quite a kind of judgmental show. And I think that feeds into the fact that these people have become monsters in the kind of public imagination. Um, is there a sense, Zoe, do you think that it, it ends up by getting so obsessed with the relationship just between Robert and Ghislaine that you end up losing a lot of the detail of the rest of the family? Yeah, as fits the mould of the way this has been slotted into like indignant morality. Yeah, you just see the bits of the story that relate to what ultimately ended up happening, I suppose. Like this very simplistic idea of a socialite who loved her dad and then weirdly starts sort of being obsessed with Jeffrey Epstein. I think the reality, when you when you start Googling the family and Ghislaine, I mean, th there's a lot more to all of their lives for sure. The, the brood, for instance, Robert Maxwell had seven children with Betty Maxwell, who as you know, who's this really quite interesting figure who's like a Holocaust scholar and won prizes for her interfaith work and so on, while also having seven children. She actually had nine children, two of whom died in childhood. And some of the siblings, Isabel, I think, and Christine were like tech entrepreneurs. I mean, they, they, they sort of stay out of the frame. And then Ghislaine herself, at the time of her arrest, she was married. Um, but we never sort of get the sense of her close relationships at all, apart from, you know, Epstein uh, and the kind of pre-Epstein phase. And, you know, as you say about the judgmentalism, I mean, everyone is presented as 
former friend, which is, uh, I don't know, it's interesting. I mean, I had a, I had a very, I had a frantic phone call one morning when the trial started from a very famous person who I'd met through in the course of journalism, who was distraught at the way Ghislaine was being treated because it troubled her. Not, it wasn't that she thought she was innocent. It troubled her that she might be innocent and that people who'd formerly flocked around her and enjoyed the fruits of her company had now kind of completely uniformly turned on her like she was a witch. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought there was there was something to that. And I think that that sense definitely pervades uh, the whole documentary and the structure of the documentary to the extent, as you say, that that sort of the textures and and nuances and complexities and depth that fleshes out the, an entire life just are barely there at all. I think it's, it's important to say that, you know, clearly... Uh, she has been found guilty, but even that guilty verdict, I think, was reached after 40 hours of deliberation, um, which again suggests that for the people who had to consider all of the evidence involved, it wasn't a straightforward matter to decide on her kind of precise guilt in these cases. And I agree, a lot of that complexity has been has been airbrushed out. Um, and we might come back to her. I suppose one thing it'd be interesting to think about is why there is so much continued fascination um, with the Maxwells and how the documentary itself fits into this, like, I don't know, this delight in conspiracy, that this is a completely opaque story still, like despite everything that's been written about both father and daughter, it's amazing how many bits of the story we still don't know. I mean, you know, we still don't know exactly when she met Epstein. At one point in the documentary, there is a sort of insinuation that maybe Epstein had was already known to her father and that Robert Maxwell was using Epstein for some of the storing money overseas. But all of it, again, is relies on this kind of buzz of sort of hearsay. Um, and so it is that the Maxwell story, I think partly why it's so fascinating is there are these multiple conspiracies and multiple whodunits buried in the story. Like there's the whodunit of, you know, his actual demise off the yacht. Then there's the mysterious whodunit and, you know, and all the conspiracy theories swirling around Jeffrey Epstein's death. Um, you can see that this is documentary heaven, but it's documentary heaven where instead of facts and instead of much evidence, what this whole thing turns on is insinuation. It's like, who's in the back of this photograph? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, you know, miked or bugged conversations can we get actors to restage? To me, it, it was, um, as I say, it kind of, it's it sort of damned by association. And it's not to say that the people involved don't deserve to be damned, but you know, there's this desire to try and get behind the mystery. And yet the problem with the Maxwells, it's like a Russian doll, like within every Matroshka, there's another one kind of hidden. It's a, it's a difficult thing to unravel. I agree. But Tom, so what are your thoughts, you know, as, as yourself, a scholar of, I'm just going to put it out there, large, wealthy Jewish families. Um, I know that sounds much worse than it actually is, but that, that literally is sort of where some of your academic interests have taken you. How would you place the Maxwell family within tradition of the, of the, you know, you mentioned the doomed family, but also the large, interesting Jewish family. I mean, not, actually, he's Jewish. The kids are therefore not Jewish. Yeah. The kids were brought up as Anglican. Well, not only that, but the mother is, uh, you know, a Protestant. French Protestant. French Protestant. So, so the kids are not Jewish. But, but you know, that's clearly a part of it. So what are your thoughts on the dynasty aspect, just to return to that? Well, I think two things to say about dynasty. One of them is that the popularity of these sort of Maxwell stories, you know, you can't help but watch it through the lens of succession. Um, which obviously is loosely based on the Murdochs rather than the Maxwells. But, you know, 
Um, Logan Roy and Shiv Roy are not far away when you look at the relationship between father and daughter here. I think there's also something very novelistic about the Maxwell story, this sort of sprawling story across generations. Um, Zoe, I think you were talking about Tolstoy earlier or kind of, you know, mentioning Thomas Mann, like it does have, it does have some of those qualities. Um, I think at the, at the heart of it, um, just to think about Maxwell himself, is there is this uh, man whose identity, I think he did he experiment with five different English names before he settled on Robert Maxwell, um, born in Ruthenia, um, which was, uh, you know, is a, is, was a part of the kind of Czech lands um, and then you know, changed hands in the Second World War. Um, a man whose family largely were wiped out in the Holocaust, a man who then becomes a war hero. Uh, I think by 1945, he spoke something like seven languages, as I say, multiple different identities. In the, you know, the first days of the Cold War, he's kind of courted both by British Secret Service, but also by the KGB, but also by Mossad. This is a, this is a completely fascinating figure um, who clearly learns to be cruel and ruthless, but also has this a kind of amazing will to survive. And, and what's interesting is how some of that survival instinct, that kind of desire to, to, to dominate, to win out, you could almost think of it as a form of generational trauma. If you were trying to be more sympathetic to the Maxwell kids, and they clearly had a very rough childhood at times at the hands of this man who became, and certainly Betty in a memoir that she wrote later in life, talked about, you know, quite how difficult it was living with this man who, you know, cheated on her, um, was sort of obsessed with his PA for a period. And at one point at the end of his life, I read somewhere, Maxwell was using towels rather than toilet paper and then just leaving them lying around the house for other people to pick up. I mean, he did become this kind of monster. Um, but at the heart of that monster is someone who has a very fragile uh, sense of trying to fit in to an establishment that doesn't want him, has had to kind of win everything for himself. Um, and there's something, there's something quite desperate, but also something quite Herculean about how he creates himself, like Prometheus-like, you know, mm -hmm. he, he invents himself by sheer will, by sheer determination. Um, how do you think the documentary dealt with the Jewishness, though? Well, I was going to say, isn't this uncomfortable territory? Because it's the oldest story in the world. The the kind of Jew who, the outsider Jew, desperate to fit in, desperate to kind of succeed in this, as you say, Herculean task of self-making and reputation making and, and just basically assimilation. And, you know, to the point that he's, he's it's very hard to distinguish between fiction and reality in the like a, a Melmot figure from, from mm, absolutely now I mean this sort of shadow there's this outsider who still hosts the best parties and has the you know he basically has to buy his, his influence I'm not sure it's quite like that in 80s 90s London or 70s 80s London but the Jewish the Jewish aspects of it quite frankly it's uncomfortable it shouldn't be because there's no reason why Jews should be more virtuous than any other group Jews are human beings in society who actually face quite particular obstacles that frankly I'm, I'm often surprised that the Jews are as law-abiding as they are but but it is a bit uncomfortable especially when the wider story ends up taking in Jeffrey Epstein and you sort of feel like you are in this awful Alan Dershowitz as well yeah although he oh yeah but he's not a major player I mean he he's, he's a, not a major player but it's a you know a lot of people Bill Clinton I mean you know so I, th I think that's that's tricky being in the, the Maxwell Epstein sandwich I mean I also think but the particular kind of financier stuff the rating of the pension pots reminds one of Philip Green uh, former owner of Topshop um, who's also Jewish obviously 
But I think then what one has to really do and be rigorous about is reminding oneself, well, you know, this anti-Semitic trope of, as you know, stained Jewish capital or immoral Jewish capital doesn't actually mean that there can never be any overlap with bad capital and toxic behavior. I mean, it's a really interesting yeah. pressure point for, the, for, for resisting anti-Semitism, actually, because, of course, there's nothing particular, particularly Jewish about Epstein, Green, or Maxwell's, you know, relationship to pension pots or or fraud. At the end, you know, but there's that there's the scene of of Maxwell in Yad Vashem in Israel, and he and he that's the one time he loses it and he cries, and then you get the feeling of actually maybe this is life has just been like a sort of Titanic struggle for him in some ways. Although obviously he then you know he obviously had a very loving wife and a family and riches and all that. But I don't know. How do you think it played the Jewish side of things? So I think the Jew, I mean, it's hard to know whether it's anti-Semitism, but it's important. One story they don't tell in the documentary is part of the reason why he was so obsessed with Murdoch, you know, and it becomes his undoing in a way in the 1980s. And he wants to build the media empire that can compete with Murdoch, although Murdoch obviously completely outplays him, is that in the 1960s, uh, uh, Maxwell had uh, tried to attain um, a kind of, I think, controlling share, something like 25% in the news of the world. And he was rebuffed in the late 60s on grounds that this was a British paper that should remain with a good British businessman. So this sense of him as a sort of foreigner, as an outsider, clearly um, ate at him. You know, it clearly kind of devoured him. And, and it was sort of a painful sense of a, of a knockback um, that maybe spurred him on to instead ensure that he built this empire that became more and more unsustainable. So there's a there's a sort of tragic overcompensation going on, even though, you know, what he does clearly is, is sort of criminal and terrible. Um, it should be said in terms of the Jewishness that he, for the majority of his adult life, you know, was desperately keen to suppress that. I mean, did not want to talk about his European heritage, especially other than, you know, some of the kind of war heroics. And it's only really in the 1980s, it seems, that he turned back to that, so much so that he's actually buried today on the on the Mount of Olives. And so it is, it was slightly uncomfortable in the documentary quite how visible his identification was at the end of his life um, with Jewishness and how much he gave to Israeli causes at the end of his life. Um, at precisely the moment that we know he's at his most duplicitous and his most destructive in terms of um, employees back in Britain. So yeah. I, I think you're right, Zoe, that we need to be careful because especially all the global conspiracy stuff, you know, including the whole question murdered or suicide, you know, where was the money? How is it related to these sort of sinister, opaque global financial schemes? All of that is out of the anti-Semite playbook. Um, and doesn't mean that there, there aren't elements of this that are genuinely concerning and that are genuinely about tainted international capital. Um, but it is almost overdetermined in a way, our interest in the story and the way that they've been given these quite crude moral roles in it. I think that's absolutely right. I think it's, also, it's quite interesting to note that some of the, yes, yeah, so you mentioned Israel, Isabel Maxwell, one of the sisters, um, who's, a, who's an entrepreneur, interestingly, kind of, she was the co-founder of Magellan, which is an early search engine. I think I'd even heard of it. So she's quite interesting women in the family. She then became the president of Comtouch, an Israeli internet company that became something called Siren and was the director of the Israel Venture Network um, and built up their social entrepreneur program in Israel from, I'm just quoting Wikipedia here, but it had caught my eye last night. Quite sort of workaday support of, of Israel uh, and Israeli commerce, I think, is interesting in in the sister who you know is raised Anglican and and obviously lives a fairly high, I mean she just she seems quite normal both of the both of the other sisters I think that there are many facets essentially to the Jewish 
identity in, at play in this family. And as you say, very important to not fall into the trap of invoking anti-Semitic tropes to explain what happens, I think. Because as you say, you could almost read it the other way, that it's precisely coming to yeah. a society where there was still intolerance towards yeah. Jews that forced Maxwell in a way to, to bury aspects of his past, you know, to, to, you know, to become more English than the English, you know, and the, the, it's more interesting thinking also about the theatricality of both him and her, um, that they are in this, they're both profoundly performative people um, there were all these elements in the documentary about how he would insist, you know, that all the doors were open so that everyone could hear all of his conversations. Like he's constantly broadcasting himself yeah. to everybody in the household. And even looking at her too, with her eye for, you know, the earrings and the shoulder pads and the outfits and the costumes, they're both kind of amazing performers in a way. Um, so all of this sort of theatricality um, is, is an important part of the story. So they, they were both very kind of um, theatrical. Uh, and in a way, the, the documentary, there's two things you might say. One of them is that the, that encounter in Yad Vashem uh, could be seen as a moment where Maxwell almost for the first time feels a sense of shame, perhaps, about how he's behaved. And that we're given the, the implication that beneath all of that bluster, he spent 40 years pretending that he's something he's not, partly because of a society that is intolerant towards um, him as, a, as an outsider. And it's a sort of moment of reckoning that perhaps has got something to do with, with his death. And again, the documentary doesn't give you a thesis. It just gives you an insinuation as it does so many times. Um, the other thing I was gonna say is because so much of it is about performance and there is something so mysterious about the money involved, I think it does give you a particular take on high society. The ease with which they can infiltrate um, these different circles, you know, the, these impoverished royals who are looking for a good time, like, you know, Prince Andrew and others, um, you know, it's, it's actually, a quite a small world you get the sense still international high society and you know you can if as long as somebody vouches for you you know the door is open and you get invited to all of these other parties and so even though behind the behind closed doors the picture is completely different they're both both father and daughter get very far through keeping up a front you know keeping up a kind of brilliant facade and um, for him that disguises his corrupt business affairs for her that disguises this deeply strange relationship with Epstein, but because they could both, you know, as performers, keep up the mask, yeah. the, the whole world was open to them. Mm. And that is the Inventing Anna storyline. I mean, that's just a, a, an evergreen plot, really. I mean, I know this is real, but I mean, the Victorians are obsessed with that kind of thing as well. So, I mean, it's, it's the sort of the, 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 both the impenetrability and the, and the porousness of, of, the, of high society faking it till you make it, as it were. So what did you make, um, uh, I mean, just to sort of transition, I suppose, to the, the, the sequel of the story. I mean, I, I felt that as the documentary went on, the richness of the story, which is, you know, is all really concentrated around Robert Maxwell and the empire and the fall. And then I felt that when we got onto the Ghislaine and Jeffrey Epstein story, it sort of sunk into stuff that we've already heard a hundred times or whatever. And I don't know whether that's because the filmmaker got bored or whether because we are in this difficult moment where actually the story has been pre-decided. It feels like it's very hard to tell other, or offer any other lenses onto uh, the, the Epstein um, Ghislaine narrative. And I just wonder whether you, you know, are there other stories we could tell about her? Well, I mean, I, look, <laughs> I think we should come to the nub of our interpretation of all this, which is that 
Ghislaine, I don't think either of us think she's a monster. Or she's not, uh, she's certainly a monster that can't be read out of context. And I think that was the thing that I struggled with with the programme is it tries to tell you a little bit about where she comes from and, and quite how toxic elements of that family background were, but then doesn't want to give any mitigation um, to how she then goes on to behave. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. I mean, well, what did you, I mean, what do you make of the, the way it's, the way her crimes are presented to me are indistinguishable from the way a mass murdering rapist, you know, a serial killer who rapes and then murders women. It's almost indistinguishable. And I object to that because I think there's actually a difference between physical harm and mental harm, even though mental harm is really, really bad and terrible. And, the, and obviously everything that happened was, was really, really gross and illegal and terrible and traumatic. I kind of wonder why is everyone so outraged? I mean, why is sex trafficking sort of so close to the surface in a high society context? Whereas when you get like sort of the Rotherham grooming gangs, I don't see people basically vomiting at the very mention of it. Kind of, you know, like it just seems weird to me that this is the thing that feels so close to the surface for so many people that brings out this kind of high moral rage when it, you could just say it's just one series of sordid crimes against women in the domain of, of sex work uh, of many, you know, it, it's just, it's just like a huge, I don't know. Don't you think there's something a bit odd about the intensity with which people have responded to this? Yeah. And I think some of that, why it's not like Rotherham, I suppose is, although clearly that has its own, you know, generates its own fury as well. This is about the 1% in a way, and it's a very obvious point, but it's to do with the kind of the, the voyeurism, but also the kind of resentment of the billionaire class more broadly. Um, you know, the Netflix miniseries about Epstein, you know, Filthy Rich. Mm. Yes, it had some chilling uh, testimony in there, but a lot of it was also, let's look at this multi-million pound apartment on an island, and then let's look at the way he lived in Palm Beach, and then let's look at the wonderful yacht. And mm. there's a... There's something about the excess of it um, mm. that brings out people's sense of, you know, extra indignation that, you know, whatever they think about the crime itself, the fact that this crime is being carried out with impunity in this gilded world. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the idea that these billionaires are really at their heart, like moral renegades, I think, that, uh, that, mm. that has really caught the public mood. Um, and, you know, the fact that it tarnishes royalty as well, it's like that last sort of citadel of privilege has been exposed as, as rotten to the core. And I think the thing with uh, Ghislaine too is the one that's a bit uncomfortable in the way that the narrative is told is it really is, um, you know, it doesn't really, because we don't know enough about the dynamic with Epstein. I mean, at some point it does look like they did were romantically involved. Yeah. Although by the time that she's becoming his quote unquote fixer, you know, what is the nature of that relationship? Is it Comrade, is it sort of a sort of rom romance that's cooled into a friendship? Is it sort of indispensable companionship? Is it parasitical? Um, as you mentioned earlier, Zoe, you know, there is evidence that she was married at the time that she was, you know, found in Manchester by the Sea, and we never hear anything else about her other romantic attachments. And so, I don't know, there's just so much, there are so many elements of this that are not known, including what kind of control he exercised over her, yeah. um, that I think our moralism can sometimes be a bit premature. And um, I think there's also a problem with these sort of unpleasant cases is just the sheer number of people who at various points went along with this. And yet it's often presented as if she's the sole malefactor, you know, she's the sinister spider in the heart of the web. Um, 
but she can't take the monopoly of guilt for this stuff. Um, you know, clearly there was an there was an awareness, and she was instrumental in part of it. But then I'm not blaming victims, but then there were clearly other people who, in other ways, were complicit in allowing this to happen. That saw this as an opportunity for them. That saw this as something that was sort of financially beneficial, and that spent a long time looking the other way. And um, and she's become the maybe the scapegoat's too strong a word, but she's become the lightning conductor yeah. for all of that rage. And um, she can give the crime a face. Whereas if we were being honest. There are many, many more little small actors in this um, who who are so far escaping the same censure. Oh, absolutely. And this is the thing that the you know the person that called me up so upset was saying was, look, here's a here's a six year old woman happens to be half Jewish. Fine, I think that might be a bit of a, a in this case a red herring. But you know, is there <laughs> is there not a witch burning element to it yeah. a little bit in the sense that fine, maybe she deserves to be burned at the stake, but then so do all the other people. I think yeah. that was the point. And I think you're right. It's, it's strange that this seems to satisfy people's need to kind of like, you know, to have vengeance uh, mm. when actually the story is gonna, of course, it's gonna involve way more complicity. And the victims, I don't know. I mean, do you think Ghislaine herself, do you think there's any way she can be seen as, as, as victim as well as malefactor, Tom? Yeah, I mean, I do think there is, there are arguments about her own upbringing and what we know about what life was like at home and the, as I say, almost like a generational trauma that was passed on to her and the, and the children and the other and the siblings that, that's worth thinking about as an inheritance. I think the story with the victims um, is complex because as you say, we're talking about forms of psychological intimidation, we're talking about forms of financial control, but you know, not necessarily forms of physical constraint. Um, and so that obviously makes not to say that there is consent in some idealized way, but clearly some people stayed in the orbit of Jeffrey and, and Ghislaine for a while. Um, and I think part of the problem that's come is that there are clearly some individuals whose lives were wrecked by this experience um, and who have come forward. And because the template they use is one of survivor, it does mean that all victims and, you know, are, are all people involved in this story are being described in similar terms. Like we are witnesses, we are survivors, our testimony is um, as a result infallible. Um, and that sort of let that sort of obscures, I think, probably the very different kinds of encounters, different kinds of motives, different kind of histories that these that the individuals involved in this had with the pair. Um, but it's all been bunched under the same kind of umbrella of survivor. And the moment that you call it survivor, you're using um, as I say, it's a kind of it's a rhetoric of justification, or it's a it's a it's a category that's hard to quibble with. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean that that is very true. Um, so Zoe, why do you think uh, the fascination with the Maxwells has not abetted? Why are we in an era where Maxwellology, and here you could think not just of the documentaries that we alluded to, but John Preston's um, brilliant biography of Robert Maxwell from from last year has been this huge hit. Why why is this a story that continues to kind of fascinate us? I mean, I think we're obsessed with fraud. That's we're in the fraud moment. Tinder swindler inventing Anna, you know, catfishing scandals. Um, but I'm gonna venture that because he's a big, fat, mysterious Jewish outsider businessman. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I, I think put, put in, that, in that summary, I, I think it is quite persuasive. You know, on the subject of the fat, you know, another weird thing I read about Robert Maxwell is that he used to, sometimes when there were two, just him and one other person having dinner, 
he would order Chinese for 19. Um, you know, he used to be able to cram huge quantities of food into his mouth. And you can't help but feel again, whether that's to do with wartime memory, like, you know, and the growing up in this position of immense sort of hardship and difficulty, whether in strange ways that continued to mark his relationship to, to food and to his body kind of all the way through his life. Um, yeah, I think, I think the story okay, it brings together fears about global capital. It brings together unspoken but sinister conspiratorial things about Jews. Um, and it brings together the kind of global sex trade and the, and the voyeurism is both about the sex lives of the rich and famous, you know, the sex lives of celebrities um, and also the, the growing sort of hatred for the property class and a sort of unequal world. So, you know, it, it's globalization, it's resentment of the super rich, it's voyeurism and sexuality and it's Jewishness and global conspiracy all in one, you know, kind of tasty. Yeah. All in one Chinese for 19. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, you've got, you've got it. Uh, well, join us next time for a discussion of Eurovision 2022.